Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. My name is Kenneth Anderson, and I'm the founder and CEO of the HAMS Harm Reduction Network. HAMS is the first harm reduction-based support group that's free of charge and lay-led that is for people who drink alcohol. There have been some drug support groups before this, but we're the first one that really does harm reduction for people that drink alcohol. Our website is hamsnetwork.org, and we have a book out called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. You can get this on Amazon.com. You can get more information about this on our website, hamsnetwork.org slash book. We're always happy to take donations to hamsnetwork.org slash donate. Tonight, our guest is Dr. Stanton Peel. We're very proud to have Dr. Peel on our show tonight. Uh, Dr. Peel was very influential on me. He basically saved my life uh, when I first uh, got out of addiction treatment and was told I had to do the 12 steps and believe in God and all these things to stop drinking. And I just had to go to the library and look for some clinical evidence for this because it seemed the strangest thing I'd ever heard. And I looked and I looked and I looked at all these books praising 12 steps. None gave any clinical evidence. I finally found Sam Peel's book, The Diseasing of America, and it said the clinical evidence just doesn't support the idea that you need to believe in God to stop drinking. I was very relieved, and that's when I started getting better. Stanton, how are you doing tonight? Great. Great, Ken. Thanks for having me on your uh, your uh, maiden voyage. Very proud to have you here. The topic tonight is addiction in the real world, and I think you're going to tell us some things about the differences between how we see addiction as it manifests itself in the real world as opposed to a treatment setting or a clinical setting. Well, we have a very strange system in the United States. We create and emphasize private treatment, especially an individual treatment for alcoholics and addicts supported by, of course, AA. But when we actually look at the broad universe of alcoholics, we get a completely, completely different picture. And the people, oddly enough, who take that broad picture are the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, the government agency that uh, funds alcoholism research. Uh, Every 10 years, they do a massive national population study, a random study, where they interview people face-to-face about their lifetimes of drinking. Uh, This last study in the last decade was called NISARC. Yes. Uh, All in capitals. And the results of that study are found at the NIAAA, National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism website, under the heading, Alcoholism Isn't What It Used to Be. And what that really means is they've gotten out of all those cramped basements with AA members and outside the Betty Ford Center and taken a larger aerial look, if you will, uh, what alcoholics do in the real world. And here's what they do. Only 12% of them end up in specifically alcohol rehab or AA. So the first thing we need to know is that the vast majority of alcoholics in America, people who have ever been diagnosed in their lifetimes as alcoholics or could have been diagnosed, according to their behavior, have never been to any kind of formal alcohol treatment or to AA. The second thing we need to know is that 70% of them recover. That's to say... That's very interesting. The large ma- What's that? That's very interesting. The large majority recover. The large majority recover despite the fact that 
very few, actually enter alcoholism treatment. So the very first thing that AA and the 12 steps and treatment tell you that you're going to die if you don't follow their footsteps is false. Um, The tendency for human beings is to get better. Now, that doesn't prove the treatment doesn't help people. Um, That doesn't prove that any individual shouldn't seek help, but it should reinforce people in their lives to know that the general arc is upward for the large majority of alcoholics. The second remarkable thing it found is that half or more of those people who recover, again, mostly without treatment, half or more of those who recover drink at safe or moderate or occasional levels. The idea that you must abstain is completely disproved by the government's own best research. Now, if we step back, what this tells us is that we've got an entire theory of alcoholism and addiction based on a few people who wander into rehab or AA. That's all that we know. And the reason that's true is because they're pretty easy to identify. We all know where the Betty Ford Center is. We all know where Passages is. We all know where Hazelton is. And they have public relations arms, as does AA. But people who don't fit into that model rarely, if ever, call attention to themselves. There's quite a large number of Americans who've had alcoholic periods, if you read their biographies. Robert Redford, um, Steve Martin, Crosby. There's oodles of them. And when they get better and become normal drinkers in all their cases, they're not going to go out on on the platform and announce I used to be an alcoholic, and I cured myself, and um, I still drink. People don't do that. And, in fact, even people who are well-known for having had drug and alcohol problems, I think of Christian Slater, I think of Robert Downey Jr., when you read interviews about them, they don't really tell AA stories. Robert Downey Jr. tells a story of how he was whatever, stoned or drunk, and he went into a fast food restaurant this is his story, and he ordered some greasy burger and fries, and he became so disgusted with himself, he threw the food out and all the drugs in his car out. So since he's staying clean now, people don't interrogate him about how he approached his problem and how he solved it, and he's not going to really beat a big bass bass drum and tell people how he did that. So there's this un- told majority, although it's right there on a web page at the NIAAA website, and what it tells us is completely different from everything that we learn about alcoholism. There's a whole theory of alcoholism, inevitable, progression, disease, uh, you know, ultimate outcome, death or an asylum, that is all demonstrably false. And it's demonstrated by our own American government. And yet, it seems to go unrecognized. It seems to go unknown. It's been discovered before. But this is the first time that the NIAAA, we have to give credit to Mark Willenbring, who's who's no longer with the NIAAA, the Director of Research, Treatment Research, who made a point of actually promoting the truth, what goes on in the real world. Which brings us back to hams and you, Ken. Um, so we have a world in which the majority of alcoholics, large majority of alcoholics, don't quit drinking. I mean, the people that don't recover, obviously, don't quit drinking. So that's about 25%. Um, it's only a small minority. It's fewer people who abstain by far than those who keep drinking. And most of the rest drink within sustainable levels, Uh, half, as I said, of the 70% who recover. Another perhaps quarter of that group um, drinks somewhat, you know, occasionally, not perfectly, but they're improved. They're no longer clinically diagnosable as alcoholics. Yes. And so 
we have a wide array, a spectrum of behavior unified by the fact that people continue to use despite having been alcoholic. Uh, quite a number recover fully by either just being occasional drinkers or becoming normal drink social drinkers. There are some who have to be quite cautious and maybe occasionally drink excessively, even perhaps with some problem, but not fully alcoholically. And then we have a group that continues to drink alcoholically. Um, let me just name one. George McGovern won an award at Harvard, a Lifetime Achievement Award for Addiction. And his accomplishment was that his daughter died on the street, drunk, and froze to death. That's how what he got a Lifetime Achievement Award for. If you said, well, I have a daughter who's just, despite a lot of opportunities, she'd been in treatment, she just got out of treatment, and uh, a lot of resources, but she can't curtail her drinking, and I tried to arrange her life so that she could maintain her existence as best she could, see her children, she, his daughter had children, and stay alive, they wouldn't give you an award. Because what you would be doing is recognizing the reality that for better or for worse, the large majority of alcoholics do continue drinking. And you would be directing your treatment or your care as a human being or as a provider of care to an appropriate goal. And you'll never get an award for that. It's better if you yeah. let your daughter die. You sort of get more acclaim as a result of that because America has an abstinence fixation. And that abstinence fixation prevents it from dealing with what all the data tell us are in fact the reality of addiction and alcoholism and make us ineffective in even conceiving about how to respond to it. So that brings me to my last little point. Um, you're your small, modest organization, which you've done so much to maintain on your own shoulders, is the only organization in the United States of America that's allowed to address the needs from the realm of becoming a safe drinker to the realm of having some problems that you're guarding against to even trying to help and deal with people who haven't got any handle on their drinking, and why shouldn't those human beings get some help? You're it. You're the whole shebang, Ken and Hams. And um, to, to make that statement, considering the multi-millions of dollars that are spent on alcohol and alcohol problems in the United States is both madding, maddingly, maddeningly frustrating um, to the point of being almost psychotic, and just makes us realize, you know, what a valuable effort you're trying to launch here. Thank you very much, Stanton. Um, I owe an awful lot, an awful lot, to the time that I spent being a volunteer in needle exchange, because these harm reduction ideas were already being implemented for drug users, particularly in response to the AIDS crisis in the uh, 1980s, in particular. People knew that if you gave people clean needles, they'd stop spreading AIDS. It would help them to stop spreading AIDS, and it was the most effective thing. People did it out of the backs of their cars because it was illegal. But they knew that any positive change that you could make was better than making no change at all. And I owe so much to uh, having volunteered there and been taught by my mentors there uh, that everything that HAMS is based on has been done before with, uh, with other drugs. The two areas, America, the United States of America, you have to know this, has always brought up the rear in harm reduction worldwide. Um, needle exchange was brought widely accepted throughout the world before it slowly caught on in the United States. Um, when AIDS shifted, when HIV infection shifted from being a problem of homosexual with homosexuals to a problem with needle injections, um, the UK was able to forestall entirely the second AIDS epidemic, while in the United States it was more rampant than the first. And that's because the United Kingdom adopted as official policy needle exchange. It's 
come about that although it's still not official federal policy now, although it's endorsed by the Surgeon General and the Centers for Disease Control, it is fairly broadly available in the United States today. We've been brought kicking and screaming to it after decades of data has shown that it prevents AIDS infection. Um, so we've gotten that far, uh, and thank God for it, and it is a leading edge, but it has not in any way opened the doors to a recognition that a drug or an alcohol policy that is fixated solely on admonishing people to say no and to telling them they'll go to hell if they fail to do that, uh, we're still in that place as, as a, a general rule. And we have to, uh, you know, realize that that doesn't work for a lot of people. My own personal story, I went through the 12-step treatment program. I was told I was powerless over alcohol. I was told that alcohol was powerful. I drank more. That's the logical conclusion from that. Uh, the idea that I need a rescue from a higher power just would not compute to my mind that did not believe in that sort of a God that intervenes and makes miracles. And that's why I started looking for research, and I found that, you know, although I really respect anyone that finds Alcoholics Anonymous or 12-step programs useful, if it works for you, good for you, many of my friends in Needle Exchange are 12-step members, and I totally respect their right to choose that for themselves. But it doesn't work for most people, and it doesn't seem to work better than a control group that gets no treatment. There's two ways to look at the... Uh results of 12-step treatment. You know, there are claims made back and forth about how effective it is, although there's just about no data to show that AA specifically is good for any general population that comes to it. But the two ways that discourage me from being inclined to believe much about AA that they say is the program itself doesn't make any sense. Having people recite some religious bromides and mention God a lot and say they're powerless, I mean, it's nice to have ceremonies. People seem to enjoy going to church. Fine. But to label that, what you read in the 12 steps, and sometimes the most remarkable thing is to take uninitiated people and just to read the 12 steps to them or have them read them themselves and see what they actually comprise, how little they tell you. Um, how base steeped in God they are. Um, and, of course, they were developed in 1935 out of a religious tradition. If we don't know a host more by now about how to help people overcome problems, uh, a host of things that a lot of which fall under the label cognitive behavior therapy, including Bandora's great discovery of the importance of self-efficacy, which is virtually the opposite concept to powerlessness, Yes. then we might as well just quit. And so it's just, uh, it's like worshiping a, um, in the South Pacific when uh, the American armed forces left after World War II, the natives were deprived of all the largesse that came from the American military forces. And so they built balsa wood airplanes and they created what are called the cargo cults to pray to them to make those things return. And that's what AA is. I mean, there are examples, of course, where people got better through AA, which is completely different from a clinical study of a treatment where you assign people to one kind of intervention and another, which shows, has never shown AA to actually be successful. And we pray at that monument. We pray to that idol. We say, well, I know somebody who got better at AA, and look, that person on television got better at AA, which leads us to the second thing that has to make us balk at the idea that AA is the solution. How well is AA doing in our country overall? How well are Americans doing with drinking problems since Alcoholics Anonymous has become 
not only the dominant, the prevalent way of dealing with drinking problems, but virtually the only way. Has alcoholism disappeared? You know, we got rid of polio, didn't we, and tuberculosis. Has yeah. alcoholism improved? Um, have we developed a way of dealing with alcohol in our society that shows that we have some clearly superior technique available? And ironically, even the the 12-step boosters like Dr. Drew would be the last people that would lead you to have that suspicion because, of course, when they're doing television programs, all they're talking about is how many alcoholics there are out there, how many are untreated, how many relapse, yes, yes, how yes. difficult it is to come over. They're actually making the case against the idea that we have anything good going on there. And what, as a part of that larger picture, what's most distressing is, and I love to ask this, I've got trick questions that I like to ask people involved with AA. Um, one is, do you think AA is good for 17-year-olds? And um, actually, I did some uh, lectures in uh, Vancouver recently. They're on YouTube somewhere. And uh, I asked that question, and there were a couple AA members in the audience. I was lecturing in Vancouver um, at Insight, which is the place that provides a heroin and narcotic injection site. And they actually said it is. And so there are two answers to that question. It does work which is ridiculous, and we should force teenagers into AA, which, of course, happens all the time. And then we tell a 17-year-old, you're a lifetime alcoholic. You can never drink again. If you drink again, you're going to relapse and go totally down the tubes. We can tell them that, which we do all the time. And and imagine what will happen. Or we can say, well, now that you mention it, I never was comfortable sending teenagers and young people to AA. By the way, the, uh, the another national government study is called the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. It finds that 50% of 21-year-old Americans binge drink at least monthly. So we've got a whole cadre of people that don't know how to drink. And if people are, aren't thinking much, they'll say, well, okay, I don't know, that's young people. What the hell are they thinking about? But it's actually, to my way of thinking, a direct result of the monopoly that AA has on our ideas about drinking and how to respond to it. If you believe that the two choices are, well, you're born an alcoholic and you're going to be an alcoholic, or you're not, if that's your approach to alcoholism, which is essentially what AA tells us, then we have nothing to say to people about, well, here's how you need to think about alcohol. Here's how you need to think about integrating it in your life. And by the time they become 21, 90% of Americans drink. Here's how it works. Here are skills of drinking. That makes no sense. And so it's not just a matter of saying that AA is obviously, I mean, on the one hand, we can look at clinical data and say it's clearly uh, not a particularly effective technique. We can go to the next level and say it's obviously not had a major ameliorative effect or any improving effect on American alcoholics in reducing the number of problem drinkers and alcoholics. But we can go beyond that and say that whole black and white dichotomized devil is evil vision of alcohol actually contributes as a fundamental component in our society's incapacity to deal with alcohol, which is most radically expressed in the bizarre drinking habits of young Americans. Yes, it is. Um, Another thing that uh, came to my attention, um, I heard that some teenagers were taken on a tour of Hazelden and when they got back, they said that they never knew that there were so many drugs out there to use and that they were anxious to try them out now, that they'd heard all these stories about all these drugs that they didn't know about before. Well, it's funny you should mention that. Um, I, one of my blogs in Psychology Today recently, the largest trial ever conducted of drug and alcohol education was recently completed in Europe. It covered seven nations, 
uh, and over 7,000 young people. And it was an experimental study in the sense that they used this program on the one hand in some schools and in other schools they didn't. Uh, the program concerned smoking, illicit drugs, and alcohol. It found no significant improvement. And they, they, the kids started out at 12 to 14 years of age. They were followed for 18 months. And so you were looking at kids who had early, early on begun to use these substances to see what became of them. And you're also seeing how it impacted initiation farther down into the teens, 15- and 16-year-olds. It found no significant improvements in uh, use of drugs by any measure over not presenting the program. By the way, in this program, it gave education about drugs, and then it tried to give peer counseling and skills training. So it was as good a program as you could devise. It wasn't the D.A.R.E. program, which has been fundamentally shown to be counterproductive. Yes. And here's what it found with alcohol. This is the most remarkable thing. It only found that kids who were getting drunk were became less inclined to get drunk, but it didn't change the frequency of drinking, how often kids drank, either ones who had already been drinking or who began drinking, compared between the control group and the intervention group. It only affected the amount of drunkenness. And so... Let me summarize. The prevention program didn't have a big, it didn't justify its cost. It was a massively expensive program. But to the extent that any positive results were measured, they were actually the harm reduction results, not of eliminating drinking or making drinking less frequent, but in making kids less likely to get drunk, either initiating drunkenness or reversing drunkenness if they had already begun to do that. And, you know, we do the, that was a massive study, uh, you know, across yeah. European countries. Um, but nobody, certainly, no, I mean, the main result is going to be, screw this, we're not going to spend money on these programs. But nobody in the United States would ever take that measure to heart because we get back to our AA problem and our entire system Everything in America is defined in terms of abstinence. We need to make people abstain. And anything that's more complicated than that message, that requires more complicated interventions, that makes us pay attention to more complicated outcomes, like not getting drunk or not getting drunk as much, is simply beyond our national capacity and can never be assimilated and utilized. Yes. Well, I see we're at the halfway point now. I'm going to make another plug for our book and our website. I'm Kenneth Anderson. I'm the founder of the Hams Harm Reduction Network. We are a support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our uh, website is hamsnetwork.org. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. For more information, you can go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. If you'd like to make a donation, we are a 501c3 public charity. You can go to hamsnetwork.org slash donate. Now, I want to ask you something else, Stanton. I want to ask um, you something, Ken, before you go yeah. on. Can I ask you a couple of questions? Sure. sure. You're from Minneapolis? I was born Where are you in from Wisconsin. originally? I was born in Wisconsin, and I lived there until I was 20 years old. I spent six years in Japan and then about 20 years in Minneapolis, and then came to New York City. Huh. And you came to New York really not knowing many people. I mean, I know you, you of course, you knew my friend, Anna Kosick, and she helped you get oriented. But you, you came here with the intention of starting a harm reduction operation, or that, that idea grew on you? Um. I came here because I had visited New York and I felt I would be comfortable here. I had just lost my job uh, in Minneapolis, and uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. I had an offer from a friend in New York that I could uh, stay with her in her apartment for a short time, and so I took advantage of that, and I found it much easier to find work in New York. 
it's been a much more comfortable environment for me. I see you as a fearless pioneer. I see you as a, wander, a true seeker and a wanderer, Ken. Perhaps, forgive me for romanticizing you, but you came to this big, hard city, and you uh, settled in, and, you know, you had a catch-as-catch-can, and yet at the same time you've done this terrific work. The Ham's booklet, what, what's the title of the book again? How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's a remarkable product. I mean, I don't know where in your background you came up with the skills to create a book like that, but it's it's remarkably well done. Um, I mean, it compares favorably with anything of that kind. You know, and you did it without a big research operation or a secretarial staff, not only not a large secretarial staff, but a secretarial staff of any kind. And, you know, you put that together all off your own back while, you know, trying to slug out an existence in New York City. And I know you found it a nice place, Ken, but let's face it, it's a cold, hard town. And, uh, you know, uh, you're just like a folk hero, as far as I can tell, Ken. I wish you would do a comic book series about yourself. <laughs> Maybe someday we'll get to that. I've had a lot of help in developing the HAMS program because uh, we've been running a support group online for four years. People, you know, tell what works for them, what doesn't work. We've been incorporating, you know, everyone's experiences, and this has given us, you know, a giant toolbox for people to pick and choose the tools that work for them because different things work for different people. And it's, you know, it's... Uh group initiated it's by the participants itself it's not a top-down thing and this a uh, podcast that you're doing it's just an example to me of how you're constantly seeking out new forms of communication the book the the internet site uh y you know these podcasts um it, you're you're just showing a lot of initiative and creativity in trying to make use of kind of the new communication channels that are that are available and putting them to, to the service of the HARMS network, of the um, HAMS network. Well, New York City is a very energetic place. I think it uh, gives me a lot of energy just to be here. and keeps me always on the move and looking for new things to be doing. Bless your little heart, Ken. All right, ask me another question. Um, I saw Dr. Drew was uh, talking about Charlie Sheen and said that uh, – he has to go to inpatient rehab because outpatient is not effective. Is there any truth to that, that inpatient is more effective than outpatient? Well, I, I actually know more than one person. Well, I'll mention them my name. Maybe you can interview them. Ilsa Thompson and uh, uh, my friend Amy Lee Coy. The name yes. of Dr. Drew kind of makes them see – they kind of makes them see red. Um I don't know what's the matter with me. Maybe I'm getting calmer with old age, but I'm just amused by his presence in the world. He's the all-around commentator. I mean, I noticed that they interviewed him to say, is Lindsay Lohan straight by looking at her on television? He's a natural uh, scold, national scold. If anybody does anything wrong, he tells them they need to get right into 12-step treatment. He's sort of like uh, in a New England town, the minister, you know, who goes around looking at people's misbehavior and calling them to church. He's got I don't know how he got that job exactly and it's fascinating to me that he does have that job. Um he makes pronouncements at the drop of a hat. He's got a medical degree, so he can often drop in the bucket some kind of medical diagnosis. He always sort of points to the brain and describes everything in semi brain like terms, which is a great technique in America. You don't really say anything different than AA but if you point to your head, it sort of seems scientific. And, um, you know, he, he talked about getting Lindsay, if he was Lindsay Lohan's father, he would plant drugs in her car and call the cops so they could arrest her. I, I know that really drove Amy around the bend. And the funny thing is, she actually has a father who's quite like that. She actually has uh -huh. a father who's constantly nudging her to go to 12-step treatment to AA. So she's already got a full-time family mentor doing that and all the success that that's produced. 
And, you know, Dr. Drew represents that great thing about America. Let's build on our failure. Charlie mm-hmm. Sheen needs to go to 12-step treatment. He spent his whole life in 12-step treatment. You know, he went off mm-hmm. the tracks way back 20 and 30 years ago. And Charlie, his mm-hmm. father... Um, boasted, you know, was always bragging, well, we've got him in treatment, he's in recovery. And that doesn't work for Charlie Sheen. By the way, I won't mention this person's name, but a woman told me this story. She was in a foreign country at a conference, and she ran into Martin Sheen, Charlie Sheen's father, at breakfast. They were staying at the same hotel. And when he heard that she was interested in this topic, and she's very much into harm reduction and motivational interviewing, uh, Martin Sheen went on the whole breakfast talking about how great 12 steps had been for Charlie. This was at some point when he wasn't knocking around and making a lot of noise. And when I asked this woman, oh, gosh, what did you tell him? She said she didn't tell him anything. And she spends her life trying to – she's written a book – and talking to people and being part of the motivational interviewing network. And when she actually push came to shove and she met somebody, she wouldn't open her mouth, which is so typical. And uh, so Martin Sheen, you might say, well, of course, he's the greatest believer in 12 steps. He wants nothing more than for Charlie to lay down and bow in front of the great 12-step God. And if only they could keep him, if they could only stand on him, if they could only make a giant Buddha out of the AA God and put it on top of Charlie's back to keep him down, then maybe he'd behave himself. And no amount of learning, no amount of negative experiences, no amount of failures can ever persuade somebody like Martin Sheen, not only that it's not effective, uh, or but even to ratchet back a little and say, you know, maybe we should look around and contemplate some alternatives. Now, I've written blogs recently, both in Huffington Post and also for Psychology Today. I actually had this strange experience this very last Saturday of appearing for 10 seconds on Good Morning America. And you can find that um, at my website. What do you think of the lady who went before me, who represented Phoenix House? How would you characterize her Um, statements? Completely. the, the thing that most impressed me was the, the cult member smile that she had. It's like uh, a, a real moody smile. And I just she did that, have that uh, kind of Pepsodent smile. The thing that most was amazing to me is here she was being interviewed about a human being who's got problems, for God's sake. You can't look at Charlie Sheen and say, well, he's not doing well at AA, and say, but look how happy he is. He's seriously running amok. And it was almost as though she was bragging and boasting and reveling in the fact, and of course she claimed that he was in denial in spades. That was her big claim. And they're yeah. so proud of themselves, these Mooney 12-steppers. Look, he's not following the 12 steps. See how haywire he's going? They say it with glee, as though that's a helping therapeutic attitude, which is the same attitude which says, look, if you can't stop injecting drugs, you deserve to get AIDS which is the same attitude, really. If you can't stop being gay, you deserve to be AIDS. You know, we're really descending into the dark heart of America, the uh, Mike Huckabee heart of America. And I I was stunned by her appearance, her gloating, her mocking of Charlie Sheen. Of course, she mocked the fact that he claimed that he was going to do it on his own, although if she was awake at all, she would know that her government's own research agency says that that's the typical way people overcome drinking problems. Whether that works for Charlie or not, it's not for me to predict. And so I was definitely farther down the line in getting a chance to speak. They gave me 10 seconds on screen, but I did a longer interview with the interviewer. And at the end of the interview, he said to me, he's on some kind of drug, right? And that's really what they had me there for. They wanted me to declare that Charlie uh-huh. Sheen was currently on all these radio shows um, expressing, you know, drug or alcohol-induced mania, which hasn't been true. He's shown clean drug tests. He's actually able to be that crazy st- straight. But Now, that's what struck me 
with the woman. Now that I had a chance to think about it, because she said the fact that he asked for a drug test proved he was in denial. And I was just, why didn't they give him a drug test if he wants one? And, of course, he is getting drug tested. I don't know if, if on his own initiative or out of the court involvement with his children. Right. Well, we will get into in 12-step philosophy, everything, you know, how many times have I been accused of being an alcoholic? It's just amusing to me because mm-hmm. I don't agree with AA. I mean, you can see it r- running through comments about my blogs. But what I tried in my 10 seconds of fame um, was to say, you know, you need to build a therapeutic alliance and try to convey the ideas behind motivational interviewing, which actually an interviewer named Rawson who interviewed uh, for, an, for NBC, who interviewed Charlie Sheen, really did a fairly good job of. Mm-hmm. By, at the same time, not making Charlie feel he was attacked, allowing him to relax into in his own comfort space, and from that space try and contemplate some of the negative outcomes he's experiencing. You know, when A, you lose your million to $2 million day gig, and B, they take your kids away, that's bad. Those are not good outcomes. And there's a way, there has to be a way in dealing with a person, other than making fun of him like that woman, or other than claim, screaming at him that he's in denial, or that he should go to Betty Ford or 12 Steps, even though he's been through them a hundred times, there has to be a way to get him to contemplate those issues in a productive way that he can assimilate and deal with. And what that's called, we know quite a bit about it, it's motivational enhancement, where you will give the person the psychological space, because you're not attacking them, to feel comfortable enough to actually think realistically about where they're at and where they're headed. And that woman was the just the same way, you know, it's commonplace, by the way, now, for rehab places to claim that they do community reinforcement and motivational interviewing because those are such big buzzwords. But in fact, she is an example. She proved that the 12 steps and the disease model are inherently antagonistic to those ideas because her natural mm-hmm. place is to scorn people as alcoholics, to mock them, to belittle them, to rush them back into the fold, to herd them back into the barn. And that's the only way they know how to deal with people, as opposed to, and we get back to the very opening question that we discussed, what have we learned in the 75 years since AA was created? Um, Is it 75 since 1935? I believe so. Um, What have we learned about... working with people to improve their motivation and ability to change their behavior, addictive behavior in particular. And what we've learned is that the method that we promulgate that is essential and core to AA doesn't work. And what I hope came out, if you turn to Good Morning America or to my website, Stanton Peel Addiction website, AppealNet, You'll can see this interview on Good Morning America, and you can contrast just her glee at Charlie's misery and what I describe mm-hmm. as being a way of building a therapeutic alliance. Mm-hmm. One day maybe they'll come to me. I mean, we spent a fair amount of time and all the things that we talked about, how effective is AA. I don't get to say uh, I talked about, well, you know, Charlie actually spoke, uh, he gave in one of his kooky interviews how Lindsay Lohan ought to think ahead before she leaps. And I described how I would take statements that he's made and try and use them as levers to get him to reflect on his own life, which is a lot more important than what he thinks about Lindsay Lohan. You know, well, what is that, if you apply that idea to your own life, what would that mean for you, Charlie, or how are you doing in terms of that, your own advice? There are ways to use people, to get into people's minds, to use their own thought processes. To It's sort of like, you know, creating um, an inoculation based on your own blood cells because, you know, you don't reject, it's, you don't reject your own tissue. 
it's like you don't reject your own ideas. Those are the ideas that you're most ready to accept if somebody can present them in a way that you can work with and expand. None of that made its way into the inter- my 10 seconds of glory and good morning, America. But I'm sitting in by the phone and praying that they'll call me up and give me another shot. They'll say, gee, you know, he had a lot of sensible things that he said. Of course, all the camera guys and producers said that. And they'll actually allow me some time to say, you know, you've heard about this disease and denial bullshit for so long. Let's just devote five minutes of national television to another way of thinking about this. Well, it would be, it would be uh, nice. There have been a couple of uh, shows that did talk about some alternatives. Well, I remember one with John Stossel, I believe. With, uh, John Stossel is libertarian. Show? I was interviewed yeah. on that show, and interesting, the worst thing about that show in retrospect was that James Frey was interviewed on that show, and that was before Oprah picked him up, and he was mm-hmm. quoted on that show as saying, I have one step, quit. If you read, I, this is something I'll just never understand, it, it, This his book, A Million Little Pieces, persuaded me <clears throat> That here's the way life works. You might think, you know what? Let's review all the evidence about alcoholism treatment. Let's look at all the failures. Let's look at our general society's incapacity to deal with alcohol and drugs. Let's look at the age rate, and then we'll change our behavior. James Frey's experience convinced me that that's not the way that humanity, especially American humanity, works. Because James Frey's book, he went to Hazelton, although he disguises the name of it, cuts up Hazelton in the Twelve Steps. Throughout, he said, if, and he says, if I had to go to AA meetings for the rest of the basements of churches for the rest of my life, I'd kill myself now. He discusses the disease theory, and he says, you know, I know what a disease is. This isn't a disease. And that's and when we when he was interested in Stas when he was interviewed in Stossel's program, I was interviewed in that also. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the line he took after he appeared on Oprah. It wasn't, you know, the book is the book. Everybody assumed he was a 12-stepper. Everybody who saw him on that program said, well, he's just in the 12 steps. And he realized that that was the way to go to make, you know, you can't go against the 12 steps to be um, a giant success. And he got a gigantic bestseller. People everywhere know who who he is. They love his story. The book itself is fundamentally opposed to and cuts up the 12 steps in AA. And by the time the whole package gets remixed and rebaked, it's just one more nail in that construct, the AA disease construct. It was just a marvel to me to watch that whole process take place. And the the good side of that, though, is, as you pointed out, we're learning from our experience with needle exchange. I, I, ideas are changing. And as bad as things are, if you're new to the field and you say, oh, I can't believe, you know, not that I represent everything. They give Stanton ten seconds, and this 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 moony lady, you know, a couple of minutes to say the same old bullshit. PBS just had a show where people just expressed a hundred percent straight down the line twelve step bullshit about uh, Charlie Sheen. It's actually much better, much more open than it was twenty and thirty years ago. Everybody at least has heard of motivational interviewing. Although you can hardly see that done in any treatment center, really, in any major treatment center. Um, The NIAAA has said alcoholism isn't what it used to be. The man who was briefly, for less than a year, the assistant secretary, uh, undersecretary for drug control, the man, you know, under the drug czar, um, announced, Thomas McClellan, announced that really addiction treatment was a a matter of a life management of appealing to people and allowing them to learn to manage their lives. So the, all of these small cracks in the fissures, fissures in the giant edifice of American disease treatment, you know, at least makes it somewhat freer to be out there and have an opportunity to speak about these things. Mm-hmm. What do you think from where you sit, Ken? Um, I did not realize that James Frey was in that show. I have to tell you something. My biggest addiction I've ever had in my life, well, I've had two giant addictions, and one was television and one was cigarettes. 
And I television will kill you every time, buddy. Television will distract me, and I will do nothing at all. I was having much trouble with television when I was in graduate school. When I was uh, when I was an undergraduate, actually, is when I said, "No more. It will not be in my house ever again." And I started getting my work done for school. And uh, I just can't have it around because I don't do anything. You went the absence root on television. Absence root on television, absence root on cigarettes. I like a cigar maybe once or twice a month. But cigarettes? Well, that's not the absence. That's a harm reduction approach then. A cigar in place of cigarettes is an abstinence. That's harm reduction. Well, I look at it like this. It's abstinence from cigarettes. It's harm reduction with nicotine. I can't watch television at home. If I go to my five-year-old adopted nephew's house, I can watch with him. He enjoys it, and, you know, he likes me to watch with him. But uh, watching alone, I can't control it. It goes completely out of control. So abstinence in some circumstances. We're not against it. I mean, when Charlie Sheen says he really needs to stay away from crack, I'm inclined to believe him. You know what I mean? Uh, Oh, yeah. I'd say so. So where do you – have you seen the field change? Have you seen the field change in the time you've been involved in it, a a few years less than me? Do you feel there's a greater openness to you and your organization, or do you feel Um, – Oppressed in in hams, or how do you see where things are? I don't get the kind of hate mail I thought I was going to get. Um, my we have uh, email contact all over the website, and very rarely does someone write in something nasty and say that we're doing a terrible thing and killing people. Um, I, I I'll send you some of my email, Ken. That way, you know, so you can <laughs> round that out. I think there's getting to be more acceptance. As you know, I've uh, the, I've been taking classes at New School, and the New School teaches harm reduction, motivational interviewing, all the things we're talking about. There are some progressive places that are accepting this. I think they're on the cutting edge, and maybe hopefully they will lead everyone, you know, towards many a, a, a multifaceted approach is what's needed. I mean, if people like the 12 steps, once again, I don't say, you know, stop going. If, if it's working for you, good for you. But there should be many approaches, cognitive behavior, smart recovery, harm reduction. All of these things, you know, have their place. And what we need is a multifaceted approach to meet people where they are at and give them something that will help them personally. Well, obviously, that's what we're speaking about. I mean, it, we couldn't hope to even begin to eliminate AA and the 12 steps in America. That doesn't even make sense is what we're all about. We're simply not only offering alternatives, that's the step, first step, but the second step is to show people, I'm working with a man named Andy Parks about developing uh, workshops for uh, more mainline practitioners. They have to learn to make an array of options available to everybody they see. Just because they've been through AA and the 12 steps, that doesn't prove that God wrote it on those tablets that he gave to who did he give them to? Was it Jesus or Moses? I always forget. In any case, uh, we we need to train professionals. And it, it so happens that you live in the – I don't actually live in New York. You live in the state of New York. It's illegal in the state of New York for any facility that receives government funding to only follow a 12-step model to promote the 12 steps within their physical setting – or as as the only group support or treatment op, uh, uh, operation, because that that's a follow up from the rulings in New York State and elsewhere that the government forcing people to undergo twelve step treatment is coerced religion, and that extends to government funding of treatment programs, uh, like everything else, like uh, the way people are regularly forced into AA around the country. It's broadly ignored, but the law is now really black line and clear that that can't happen. And 
when that becomes instituted, when it becomes understood that to become a professional in treatment, you have to be comfortable with different approaches and offer people different approaches as they choose, uh, which is called in real medicine informed consent, or which they clearly prefer, or in terms of them having failed at one approach versus another. Our, as you said, our goal is not to eliminate options. Our goal is to broaden options and to make everybody understand that we'll no, no longer have some imbecile say 12 steps is the only way. Uh, you, you're crazy for presenting some kind of other option. AA so great. Those very same people, if you want to ask them a trick question, say, well, what percentage of people who come to AA stay at AA and succeed with it? Because whatever number they give, five percent, ten percent, twenty five percent, then you're always able to say, Oh great, that's super. I only want to work with the other ninety five, ninety or seventy five percent of people. That's all I'm concerned about offering an alternative to. Now an interesting exactly. experience I have in life is that I write for the Huffington Post uh blog and I always wonder, I don't really know anybody there, uh I, I have a blog for psychology today. I know some of the people there and they're psychologists the Huffington Post is a liberal, obviously, publication, and mm-hmm. uh, they do publish my stuff. Sometimes they don't. A lot of times they do. But you would think, well, gosh, wouldn't liberals be less God-oriented? Wouldn't they be more evidence-based? I mean, after all, don't liberals believe in evolution and conservatives don't believe in evolution? Mm-hmm. But there's actually a mixed reaction to me among a liberal population that there's some of the strongest adherents to AA or in that group. I sometimes I feel the editorial staff. I sometimes feel well they're pushing, they're allowing me to express myself. They see the need for alternatives. Other times I wonder if they find me too edgy. And so it's ironic, and I just that even among the most advanced thinkers, the most forward and liberal thinkers, the most freedom-oriented people, it's still in many cases a giant leap to tell them. You know, there's something else besides believing that addiction is an uncontrollable disease. Ken, this is the most fun I've ever had in my life, you know? Uh, I don't know what I've been doing with myself since then. I'm going to, after this interview, I'm going to have to take up television. Uh, Is there anything that we've left undone here? Um, You mentioned New York, and uh, it's an interesting thing in New York City, the... uh the commissioner of the Drug and Alcohol Services in New York City is a harm reductionist. Did you, huh. Were you aware of it? Uh, she, I, uh, originally, uh, harm reduction is... Uh-huh. Yes, she That's, originally was that, the executive that, director at Citywide, which was the needle exchange. And I'm hoping that she will agree to be a guest on our program here. Um, she's considering it right now, thinking it over. She's like, you need some time to think about it. I That's think really going to be great. And I think you I should ask you'll... her. I hope you'll try and bridge her from, I mean, what we just talked about at the beginning of the show, from harm reduction, which is obviously appropriate in needle exchange, to try and draw her out to what harm reduction means in the case of alcohol, alcoholism, and AA, to try and have her branch between those two areas, which uh, people are often unable to do, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, Yes, but I actually, two years ago, I met her and put some harm reduction hands literature for alcohol in her hands, and we have uh, been friends since. We're Facebook friends right now, so. Wow. Yes, she's interested in the idea of harm reduction for alcohol. So I think you'll have to get a... We'll have to make it citywide policy then. Do you think they'll make me alcohol commissioner soon, anytime soon, Ken? Uh, that would be great, you know? I can't it's wait. Do you get a crown with that? I think you have to be a citizen of New York City, probably. I don't know all the details. Well, it looks like we need to wrap up right now. We're going to close down very shortly. Um, I want to thank you very much for being a guest. It's great to have you here. And it's great that you're doing this, guest, Ken. Thank you so much. Next week, our guest will be Dr. Mary Ellen Barnes, who runs a non-12-step rehab outpatient facility in uh, California. And 
She'll be our first guest. Our second guest will be a speaker from LEAP, which is Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. These are cops who say that we need to legalize drugs because prohibition is putting too many people in prison and increasing drug use. And once again, our website is handsnetwork.org. Our book is How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. You can get it on Amazon. Go to handsnetwork.org slash book. Or if you want to make a donation, go to handsnetwork.org slash donate. Thank you, everyone, very much. Thanks so much, Ken. Good night. Good night.